Welcome to Guest of the Year. I'm the host. My name's Mike. This week's guest setlist curator is Stephen Brower. Stephen is the global co-lead of artist relations for Amazon Music and an aquarium drunkard contributor. He also curates the Cosmic Strings playlist for Amazon Music, which features ambient and experimental instrumental music from guitarists and pedal steel players. I'll put that link in the show notes. Thank you for being here, Stephen. Welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is uh, very exciting. I can't wait to see uh, what you guys come up with. This week's prize pack is provided by Trout Stalkers. Trout Stalkers is run by Joe, who I'm sure everyone remembers from the episode a couple weeks ago. And he runs Trout Stalkers, which is a fly fishing outfitter, guide service, booking agency, and full service fly shop in Ennis, Montana. They do fly fishing trips around the Madison River and also to Big Hole, Beaverhead, Ruby, Jefferson, Yellowstone, Missouri. They also have a ton of dead themed apparel and merchandise. Um, as you'd imagine from Joe, who's a huge deadhead. Check them out, montanatrout.com. I'll link them in the show notes as well. Thank you so much, Joe, for, for doing the prize pack. We really, really appreciate it. Here's how the game works. We'll play the first part of a Grateful Dead live track, and each contestant will use the messaging system to silently guess which year the performance is from. Contestants who are all on a video conference together can message in their guesses at any time during the clip or in the 10 seconds after it concludes. Whoever is furthest from the correct year is eliminated. The last two deadheads standing will have a best of three series to determine a winner. We've got our returning champion Steve here with us, and we'll meet the rest of the deadheads in a moment. But first, without further ado, the Grateful Dead. God rest his soul. He taught me good luck. Taught me all I know. Taught me so well. Well, I grabbed that gold. And I left this dead out there by the side of the road. Okay, the guesses are in. That was a wild me and my uncle into the other one at the Allen Theater in Cleveland, Ohio on October 29th, 1971. Sick pick, Stephen. Why, why that combination of songs? Um, that's like, I mean, I, I'm a, I think maybe like a lot of people who come on the show, I'm a big serious XM Grateful Dead channel listener, and I, I caught that one at some point in the car maybe a couple of years ago, and just thought it was super weird. I think the whole sequence is like a, 
cryptical other one me and my uncle deal uh like it's like a super weird like combination and i felt that that section with the piano and i think there's a, there's no pig pin on that show so it's like the piano is super intense and almost feels like a like a film score or something so uh, i felt like that it just it's just a super unique uh version that i and, and i love the other one I mean, it's my favorite like jam vehicle so is there any specific reason you chose a the other one from 71 um, I don't know. I mean, 71, I, it's, it's like in my sort of like, uh, armchair playing of this game. I think it's like the easiest year for me to guess. Cause it like has a the sort of like just really unique quality of 71 kind of energy. I think it's that transitional period from kind of feral sixties dead and then through the 70 records. And, um, I don't know, I, I really like 71 and, and I think I, that's another reason I like the other one, I think, is because you get to see it sort of throughout the whole kind of history of the, of, of the band. Um, and and I don't know, this one is just particularly, particularly tasty. Agreed. Awesome. Well, Steve was the only one to get it exactly, 1971. Steve is our returning champ. He is 51 from Lincoln, Nebraska. Nice poll, Steve. You, you sent that in pretty quickly. How'd you diagnose it? Keith, that's my favorite uh that's of if i had to pick a tour like my desert island tour it would be keith's first tour across the midwest and east coast in the fall of 71 i love weirdly the sound of his piano because they haven't quite figured out how to it's, it's like like they were uh i garcia said about i think it's like skull and roses album that it was like quintessential barroom grateful dead it was like grateful dead as a, as a bar band you know and keith and the way his keyboard sounded was like this honky tonk ragtime maelstrom, you know? And so it just really fit into what they had going on. And it was just the energy that came like the glee that emanates from the recordings from that time is just, I mean, they're all just having a, a blast, you know, and, and it's so obvious and there's very little like, um, pretense i guess like they're all just out kicking ass and taking names and having a ball doing it you know and so i immediately just keyed in on like well that's fall of 71 just the tone of keith's piano by the time they hit uh what is it the academy of music in march of 72 it was more refined so i love the the wild hairy wooliness of that tour it's just out of control and i love it so you're not into like the manicured europe 72 as much Oh, it's beautiful and energetic. And uh, to quote Phil Lesh, uh, Billy Kreutzmann played like a young god on that tour. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's fantastic. I love it. But I really, I like my Grateful Dead music ugly. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, Steve. Coming out guns blazing here. I love it. That's uh, right. <laughs> so the next closest was uh, Jimmy. Jimmy is 27 from Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. Nice work, Jimmy. One year off. Why 70? Uh, you know, I'm actually getting a little education from Steve over here. I thought 70 was Keith's first tool. Yeah, uh -huh. <laughs> I, uh, I figured, you know, it's, you know, they hadn't dialed in the volume on Keith's piano. And it was, like he said, just grisly, wet and wild. Uh, it was really fun. So I could tell it was 71, 70 and basically second guess myself. Backspace the one and put a zero at the last second. Uh, great work, Jimmy. James guessed 1973. And Shane guessed 1969, so they're both tears off. So everyone goes on in the next round. Woo! Nice, nice work, guys. So we'll start with Shane. So Shane is 29. He's from Brooklyn by way of San Diego. Why do you think it was 69, Shane? 
the keyboard volume was just something I wasn't really familiar with at all. And like the way it was, everything was being played. Um, and, and also the speed of the me and my uncle, I, I just thought it was somewhere in between like 69 and 71 was like that vibe of like kind of slower me and my uncle, like kind of a different, like jaunt of it. I don't know. It kind of felt like that early, I mean, late sixties kind of thing. And without, you know, transition made me think it was going to be later when it just went into the other one like that without the big old bass intro that I love. But uh, yeah, that made me think it was going to be later, but I was like, I'm just going to stick with the first kind of numbers that came into my head. So I stuck with that. So your, your game plan is going with the gut. I almost switched uh, to be like kind of like 73 or four almost. I don't know why, but stuck with what I had. So maybe I'll go with that for a little bit. Sounds good. The endless debate. Um, yeah. <laughs> James, 73. Anything you want to add to the, the discourse here? Yeah, I had 71 typed in. And then they Another went into that other one. <laughs> and it was like this psychedelic, crazy jam that I associate more with 73, 74. But yeah, as you were saying, 71 is like, I associate it with like bar band, dead. So yeah, I think it's just that weird, got a little psychedelic and jammy and that I associate that more with the later 73, 74. That's why I did that. Awesome. And I should say James is 28 from Las Vegas by way of England, right? Yeah, originally, but I've lived in America for most of my life. So I lost the accent. Welcome, James. And you're on to the next round along with everyone. Steven has another awesome pick. Let's hear it. saucy Althea at Oakland Auditorium Arena on December 26th, 1982. Fun pick, Stephen. Why'd you choose that Althea? I like, I like Althea. I'm a huge Althea fan. Um, I like in the, in the Long Strange Trip documentary, I think um, Al Franken says something about like collecting Althea's. I really like, I always, I just like envision, I like that uh, sort of terminology. So I just wanted to, I wanted to pick an Althea. Um, 
I, I got to interview um, Mickey and Bob. Uh, Amazon has a feature, had a feature called Side by Side, which is sort of a commentary feature. And they talked about that song. And the Mickey interview was like super fascinating about how he thinks it's a deceptively simple song. And uh, so I, 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 you know, I just, I always think about that um, interview and what he talked about uh, when I'm listening to that song. I like the idea of imagining seeing the Grateful Dead the day after Christmas. I always like to sort of imagine a show. Like, I'm like, well, like, you know, just like, am I back in my hometown? If I'm, you know, just, I sort of like to put myself into the, into the, the place I wasn't able to be. Um, and then lastly, I just, one of the reasons I like Althea is I feel like Jerry, even when he's not sounding his best, really like feels like he enjoys singing it. Like, I think it kind of has an attitude and a swagger. He kind of, it's like the little shit talking. And I, I just, I always sort of enjoy that. Um, and, and that sort of comes through even in like his like non-peak years. So I, I, I don't know, that, that's sort of the, the context there, I guess. How did you prepare to interview Mickey and Bob? I think it was, it was sort of like this, where it was a bit last minute. And I was, I was, I was drafted in last minute in a good way. Uh, the guy who was conducting the the interview, he sort of knew what he didn't know, and he, he was not a deadhead. And he we was we were going up to TRI to see Bob and to Mickey's Ranch to see Mickey. And the day before, and it was around the release of the Long Strange Trip film. Uh, and so uh, the day before, he kind of was like, "Hey, man, um, I kind of want you to be my wingman, just so I don't say something embarrassing, like you know, or, or you know, I've done my research, but." There's just this sort of language that you speak that I don't. And so that night, I like watched the whole six hours. It was like a pre-release cut of Long Train Trips. So I sat and watched the whole six hours uh, just because that we were sort of building the questions around that. And I just sort of thought, like, what are things we can ask about that I think might have some interesting answers? And, you know, we were wrong. There were some things that we asked Bobby that, like, got, like, I don't want to say one word answers, but not, not super, uh, uh, like, you know, kind of ex extensive answers. Mickey was much more, um, they both gave great, great interviews and there was some amazing stuff, but like, I think Mickey was really ready to sort of just dive into, to sort of his experience of these songs, uh, over, over time, you know, the, the, the way that Mickey talked about Althea particularly, I think was that he said that he and Billy couldn't kind of figure it out for a while. And there's some really rough early Althea's and Mickey talked about how, he actually heard a tape playing back when he was at a party at Wavy Gravies or something. And he was like hearing it from afar. He like clicked into, oh, that's what we need to do. And he went back and talked to Billy and he was like, hey, the, the, this meter expands and contracts within the bar. So we have to slow down and speed up sort of at, like, you know, rhythmically. And, and he sort of like really was, it was just an amazing kind of like eureka moment of me even listening to the song after that and hearing that like expansion and contraction. So um, I think we were trying to give enough high level context for people who are just like maybe Long Story Trip is their first thing. Uh, and then folks who are really wanting to go as deep as you can, like building some content around it, um, like that, that editorial feature that um, where there was that as well. You guys totally succeeded. That was, it was one of the best things i've watched in you know a long time um, awesome yeah well again steve nails it 1982 again you sent it in pretty quickly steve how did you figure that out why 82 and how did you know so <laughs> yeah the, for me well one of the first i think i mentioned uh, last week the first two bootleg tapes i got one was 62186 from the greek theater and that's still one of my favorite second sets it's ragged but right 
and then the other one was uh, uh, Red Rocks uh, 82 first set. And the, the key, I never liked that tape very much. The keyboards were really high in the mix. It was like very Brent prevalent. And it was, it was uh, the early 80s are tricky in every regard except for Brent's keyboards because he went in 82 to this Yamaha electric piano that has a very distinct sound. And that's what I heard on this. And then in 83, it went to the more the, the synths and I can't remember the make of it. Uh, now, if that would have been a song like Minglewood or something that was Hammond B3 heavy, all bets are off because the sounds are very like from the early 80s. There's especially like 79 through 83, 82. Like it's hard to tell. Then I would key in on Phil Lesh. But that was in this case, it was that piano. Excellent, Steve. Fascinating. Thank you. James and Jimmy both guess 1981. They're both on the next round. Shane guessed 1980. Sorry, Shane, your odd man out. Um, let's uh, let's hear James. Why eighty one? Yeah, the early eighties. Uh, I'd listen for the drums. The kick drum specifically has like this thud, like it's kind of peaking every time they hit it, and that's kind of what cued me in to early eighties. Uh, key- different keyboards. I-, I can't go that specific, so that's impressive that you know the actual brand of keyboard that he's playing, but um, yeah, so I just guess 81 just to kind of be safe. What was going on with that drum? Just like the kick drum is so punchy. It's like, yeah, they're just really, I can, you can hear it in the mix. I don't know, really like prominently. Yeah, and just when it hits, it really like booms. It's good, it, I like th- it. That was a playing thing or a kit thing or why? I think it was, yeah, yeah maybe, or like a recording thing. I yeah, it know. sounds like a mic thing or something, huh? Yeah, yeah. Someone was rigging the mic closer for that year, and now here we are. Yeah, or maybe they're trying later. to you know, put a different type of microphone down there, getting creative. Yeah. You know? Wow, that's cool. Good poll, James. Yeah, and uh, Jimmy, anything you want to add to the 81 diagnosis there? Yeah, I was, I was inches away from calling it a 79, just because he was messing up the lyrics, and you know, it was kind of like a parlory kind of tone on the keys. You know, I'm no Yamaha expert. <laughs> I'll leave that to Steve. But, uh, you know, Steven kind of keyed in on this, but it was the swagger that kind of tipped me off that it needed to be a little bit later. You know, he's constantly butchering the lyrics to that one, but the way he delivered them was really, he had that step to it. And he did that one little pull-off lick that it's like a little, you know, showing a little shoulder skin or something. I got me feeling frisky. You can tell he'd been sitting in that groove for a little while. So Jerry keyed me in on that one. Way to go, Jimmy. On to the next round. Shane, 1980, two years off on an early 80s one. Why'd you guess that? Yeah, I was getting early 80s from, you know, his voice, Jerry's voice. And uh, yeah, the, it all lies in the key sounds. And that kind of gives it away, I think, for, you know, for certain years for people. Like, I, I can't, re- you know, I wasn't reading into it. I would, you know, it was a lot louder, I think, than was used to and just not as synthy. Or, you know, the way later years of Rent sound, I guess. Um, it was, yeah, I just couldn't read the keys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, nothing to hang your head about there. How did you get into right. the dead? Uh, I've been in my periphery for so long. Like, I, I always say the, the pandemic was kind of where things kind of really shift for me. Um, you know, my dad had a... Uh, the steely patch on his back. His name is Phil. So he always meant, he mentioned when he was 
younger, having a Phil Zone sticker on his helmet on his motorcycle. Didn't know what that was for a really long time until, yeah, I had some, you know, friends whose parents were deadheads in the 85, 86 era in Berkeley. It was just always around me. And then during COVID, I, I you know, everything was just up in the air. And I, I don't know where I lined up with it and just became almost my everyday. I was still working throughout and going to work throughout COVID and was just listening to the dead every single day, you know, dead of the day, whatever it was. And uh, I just fell really deep into it. And now it's my everyday still. <laughs> Lovely, Shane. Thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Of course. So uh, James, Jimmy, and Steve are fighting for two spots in the best of three series. Stiff competition here. This is great. Steven's got another pick. Let's hear it. Birdsong Jam at Laguna Seca Raceway in Salinas, California on July 31st, 1988. Steven, uh, why that bird song and why the jam portion? Um, I guess someone, and maybe Steve knows or somebody uh, more learned than me about these things, but like one of the, the sort of official uh, Grateful Dead spokespeople at some point said that they thought that Birdsong is where Dark Star was hiding out in the 80s. And um, I don't know if that was Lemieux or, or David Gaines or someone who said that. And I just kind of wanted to reflect that in, in a pick. And, and I felt like this had that, you know, sort of really kind of, are they going to hold it together? Like the drummers get really kind of like they're, it's falling, the falling down the stairs kind of thing is happening, you know? And, um, and then I, again, like I, I talked about this with the Oakland pick, um, I live in California. I'm from North Carolina, but I've lived in California for a long time. And I, I haven't been to that venue but i've been to that part of the world i've seen shows in that part of the world and i felt like i could kind of again like imagine sort of being there uh and and i always like to so that was a sort of all those elements combined to like i i, I think i can picture what this was like in in uh northern california or, um in 1988 so that, that that was it so it seems like you like being transported by shows 
Yeah, no, yeah, totally. And I, I, I never saw, I never saw the Grateful Dead. Um, so I, I guess that's part of my kind of uh, vision questing of listening to these songs is, is, is sort of time and place. And you know, having seen things like Sunshine Daydream or, or any of the other, you know, there's some great footage out there. Again, or places I've been. There's some great footage from like Cameron Indoor Stadium at, in, at Duke where I've been to see basketball games and, and watching that. It's like a three hour show, you know, watching that footage, you know, I can kind of just sort of put myself there. So like, I think, yeah, when I'm listening or, or, or watching footage, it, it's just sort of um, fun to imagine the vibe and, and, uh, and the, the, the experience, you know, with sort of all the context that we have now with the benefit of history. Awesome. Thanks, Steven. So everyone guessed 1989. <laughs> so everyone's on to the next round. They were flying. Yeah. Is that, so yeah, Jimmy, why, why, we'll start with you. Why 89? Cause they're flying, man. It's, you know, those late eighties jams, your brain immediately goes to 89. You know, Brent's kind of got that light touch on the keys. You've got, you know, Jerry going, I, I almost put 90 cause I thought I heard a little bit of MIDI work there on the end. But uh, it seems like that was just, you know, a rosebud, if you will, of the MIDI experience. <laughs> you know, it was just the soaring jam, you know, a good classic late 80s bird song. 88, you know, something could have given it away, but that's for a wiser man than me to denote. <laughs> uh, James, do you know what would have given it away there? Not specifically to 88, but I mean, I'm just stoked I got an Althea and a bird song. On the episode <laughs> that I'm on, that's, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I was struggling to hear the keyboard, and I heard a lot of Phil, and it was he was jamming, and I was just like, this is definitely like '87 to '80 or to '90, probably or yeah, definitely, but yeah. Well, nice work, Steve. A rare one year off for you. Uh, <laughs> why '89? Well, because that 88 and 89, they're tough because they sound a lot alike. Uh, the the uh, instrumentation is virtually identical. And I, I guessed 89 instead of 88 because 88 is usually a little bit more, like the songs are kind of shorter. You know, there's not as much. It was 89, they really started to kind of get weird again. And so that threw me because that, that bird song was pretty loose. I liked Steven. I liked your tumbling down the stairs thing. Like, I love <laughs> that feeling of like falling through space you know and i really appreciate your comments about like envisioning you know looking at arena and think oh well the dead played there and this is we're standing in like cameron stadium and knowing that you know the dead were there at one point i do the same thing you know and uh so anyway that's that was a tough one cool well everyone's on the next round you guys are tough to fool but let's see if uh let's see if steven can do it on this next one
So that was Cold Rain and Snow at Madison Square Garden on October 13th, 1983. Steven, nice pick again. Another early 80s song. Why that one? Cold Rain and Snow is my favorite opener. Justice for Cold Rain and Snow. Um, <laughs> like, uh, I think it's a combination of things I said earlier about Althea and the other one. Like, I like the sort of muscular quality of that riff, I think. And and then I like, again, it's another song that Jerry, I think, just, just sort of like, he has this kind of like attitude around it. And then I like that recording because, I don't know, maybe it's just the MSG, but and being an audience, like you just hear people going nuts. And like, it's like, here we go. Like, that's a great, like opening the first set. I, I like, I think my favorite called Rain and Snow is, is the Lyceum, but I, that would, I didn't want to do that one. I felt like that would have been too easy. So uh, I, I just was looking for another called Rain and Snow. Yes, you sent me these uh, these specific tapes. Do you like listening to the the audience recordings, especially? Not necessarily. Sometimes, so, and like this one has the thing that I like sometimes of like being able to feel what the vibe was. Like you know, great if it's a great Betty Board or great Charlie Miller or whatever, those are awesome. But sometimes just like feeling like people were really chill or people were really going for it. Maybe it is that transport thing, but that it comes through in an odd. So like the slightly worse quality doesn't bug you. Not really. Yeah. Hell yeah. Oh, the best is when you can hear somebody calling for his buddy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Mike, Mike, yeah. I'm the idiot waving. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you know? Steve got it exactly, 1983. Um, what's up, Steve? Talk to us. <laughs> well, I already said the answer, which was it was, or, it was there's Brent playing the organ in the early 80s. And, I, and so I listened to Phil. And 83 was when he started playing. I don't remember the make of it exactly, uh, but it was six string bass and it has a kind of a unique tone. It was like 81 and 82. He moved from the Irwin bass to like basically, I think it was like a Fender knockoff. I don't know who made it, but uh, I don't mean knockoff. It's in lower quality. I mean, better than, but uh, so that was what, that was what gave it away. And Jerry's voice too. It's kind of distinct in 83. He's moving from the sweet Jerry to the bellowing Jerry. There's that transition there. I wanted to give a shout out uh, to this book, if you don't mind. It's by Blair J- Blair Jackson, and it's called Grateful Dead Gear, the band's instruments, sound systems, and recording sessions from 65 to 95. And it's fantastic. It's a very deep dive in all of the Dead's equipment. So if you want to know, like, when I start throwing out instrument names, it's from that book. And it's still available. I don't know if it's still in print, but it's still, in, uh, still available. Can't recommend it enough. If you're a gearhead and just want to know how the, you know, why, how does that sound that way? That book's awesome. Is it like an encyclopedia kind of, or is it's it? It's just, um, it's a, well, it's not exactly an encyclopedia. It's just, it literally goes through from 65 to 95, all of the gear that they were using, including like Jerry's Guild guitar and Pig's Vox organ through the wall of sound and everything that went into that. Phil's PIE bass amps in the eighties that were insane like 4,000 watts each. And he had two of them, you know, I mean, like that's, it goes into that low and Bobby and the cowboy fancy Ibanez and his movement. And Bobby is the one that led the MIDI charge for better or for worse. And everybody else went, well, I want to play with that. You know, <laughs> it, go, it goes through all of that in, in really great detail. It's just a fantastic book. Can't recommend it enough. Awesome. Yeah, so James guessed 1981 and Jimmy guessed 1985. So they're both two years off. So everyone's on to the next round again. Uh, <laughs> James, talk to us. Why 81? Yeah, it was that, that bass drum so was still kicking really hard. So I was like, it's definitely early 80s. 
and uh, I was like, it's not 82, I'm, I, I think. <laughs> so 83 or 81, and I just went with 81. Playing the game. Uh, yeah. And Jimmy, why 85? Yeah, I, I definitely heard the you know weakness in Jerry's voice, which I am kind of partial to. I really like it. Uh, I think that's a really, really great call by Steve, you know, right? The transition from sweetness into warble and crooning. But, uh, you know, the thing that threw me off was it's MSG. I, you know, I could hear it was a bigger room. And I could hear they were, you know, nice and settled into a slower cold rain and snow. So I figured 85, you know, it's got to be a little bit after 83. But not 83. Go with the gut. There you go, Jimmy. Um We've got another song for you. Let's hear it. Okay. Are You Lonely For Me Baby at Academy of Music in New York City on March 25th, 1972. Steven, uh, that's an obscure one, of course. Why that song? I love it. Like, again, it goes back to that sort of like attitude swagger thing, I think. Uh, and it, like, I heard it on Sirius a few years ago. I was like, what is this? I don't, what is this song? I've never heard this song. I like took a picture of the radio and texted it to my buddy. And uh, he was like, I don't know that song. And I, um, I didn't know the Academy shows that well at the time. And, and um, I didn't, I think it's on Dick's Picks 30, but I didn't have that. Anyway, it's the only time I ever played the song. And I just love that group, the sort of like backbeat. Like, yeah, I, I, I think it's just really fun to listen to. It was fun to, to watch uh, to watch everybody sort of getting into the groove because that's exactly my experience of that song. I, I'm, I'm, I'm maybe guessing that maybe everybody got it exactly right. I don't know, but I was I still wanted people to to hear it and to, 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 to sort of give them shine to... Are you lonely? Are you lonely for me, baby? Yeah, I never heard that song before. Before you sent it over, and now I—I I mean, it was, it's fantastic. Yeah, I could have listened to that all day. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? Steve got it exactly, 1972. He was the only one to get it exactly. Steve, why 72? Academy of Music. 
I, I knew the show. I knew that 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 was just luck. I can't remember if it's the same night, but Bo Diddley's there. Yeah, yeah, is it is. It's the same, same show. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, the Bo Diddley set's great, and so that's where I've heard it. Great. Well, this is a lot like the Laura show with endless ties because um, <laughs> Jimmy guessed seventy three and James guessed seventy one. Uh, so everyone's on in the next round again. If this goes to 10 songs, then Steven's going to start picking drums and spaces. So uh, right. <laughs> uh, we'll see what happens. So yeah, Jimmy, why, uh, why'd you guess 73? You know, I knew, was, so I was off on two fronts. I was off on the year, and I thought it was BB King and not Bo Diddley. But my mind was, you know, in the right place. So I knew it was that special set of shows. I knew it was a rarity. You know, I've heard this run before. Just thought it was 73. Got my wires crossed. Not crossed by much. Not crossed James. enough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, James, why 71? I first heard 76 because I was like, they're kind of getting into like Motown y feeling and the audio quality sounded kind of 76 y. But um, I went back to like 71 is bar band dead. I know those shows. I've listened to Dick's Picks 30, so I should have known better. You're forgiving. I'm kicking myself, too. (laughs) (laughs) Great great pick. Great pick, man. Okay, let's play another song. Someone has eliminated. The plot thickens. That was a Peggy O at Greensboro Coliseum in North Carolina, Stephen's home state, on October 9th, 1983. Stephen, why'd you pick that Peggy O? Um, I like Peggy O, and this is, uh, I'm from a town called Ashboro, North Carolina, which is exactly 26 miles uh, straight down uh, Interstate 220, or uh, Interstate 74, 75 now, Highway 220, from Greensboro, North Carolina. So, this is 
probably the Grateful Dead show that took place in the closest proximity to my hometown. So it goes back to like the thing of like, I've been there a million times. You know, I can sort of like put myself in the room. Uh, and, and I like Peggy so. Nice. The closest was Steve, who guessed 1984. Steve, do you think it was 84, or do you think you weren't going to get another 83? I was a toss-up between 83 and 84. Uh, the, the only differentiation for, for me was I thought maybe the keys sounded a little less 83 synthy and a little more 84 synthy. That's it. Hell yeah. Okay, so... Um... Jimmy guessed 1989 and James guessed 1979. They're a decade apart, but James was a little closer. <laughs> uh, James, you're on to the finals to face Steve. Why did you guess 1979? I think the Peggios I know the best are like 78-ish. So maybe I was just biased towards that a little bit. Yeah, that's that. Well, you're on to the finals. Nice work, James. Jimmy, uh, 89, what were you thinking there? Man, it was just so pretty. I really thought I had it with the 89. Uh, you know, I heard Brent's keys back there doing nice light work. I should have known the 83 tempo runs true. Well, Jimmy, how did you get into the dead? Uh, I think Eyes of the World is the first song I remember. My mother was into it. It was just always playing when I was growing up. You know, I gravitated away from it a little bit. In my you know ten year old days, doing my homework on the Beatles and stuff like that, but eventually came right back around and been falling harder and harder in love ever since. So it's just been great. Do you have a favorite era for the song? I mean, I I love the evolution of the song. I love the crazy bassy jams all the way at the end of the you know early iterations in seventy three seventy four. You know, I love how you know just widely expansive it is as a whole catalog song. I love it lyrically. It's one of my favorite songs to play. I mean, it's, it's just touching in every single sense of the word. It's ignited a lifelong love affair with the Grateful Dead that spans, you know, all over the entire globe, you know, got me here. It's got me there. It's got me everywhere. <laughs> do you have a, so, do you have a favorite uh, pairing with eyes? Uh, you know, if I find a show that's got a Here Comes Sunshine and the Eyes of the World in them together, then I know I'm in for a day. <laughs> you know, I'm going to be in a good mood for a week after that one. <laughs> awesome. Brilliant work. Loved your analysis. Yeah, thanks for being here, Jimmy. Happy to. Thank you, guys. So um, Steve and James are on to the finals, and they are competing for the Montana Trout Prize Pack. Thank you again to Joe. And yeah. All right, let's hear the first song in the finals. Shoot. 
Okay, great. So deal at the Swing Auditorium in San Bernardino, California on February 26th, 1977. Steven, great deal. We're all bobbing our heads here. Uh, why that one? It's my favorite show, uh, 22677. Like first terrapin, first estimated. They love each other. It's just awesome. This is kind of like my cold rating. So I love a first set closing deal. Like I just love the, at least like all of that. Uh, it, it, I think you guys have gotten a sense of the types of songs I like to hear Jerry sing. And so I, I just wanted to, wanted to showcase a, a great deal for my favorite show. Cool. Will, Steve got it, 1977, and James gets 73. So Steve, you knew what was going on there. <laughs> How'd you ID I, I knew it? I knew exactly what show it was before Phil dropped in. <laughs> no shit. That was my first high quality, like second gen tape I ever had. I was at Buckeye Lake, Ohio in the summer of 91. And there was a guy standing next to me. I had some lemonade then he was thirsty and he had some things that I didn't have that I wanted. So we shared and uh, we became friends and um, he had a radio show like on community radio. I want to say in Columbus or Cincinnati I could be wrong. But anyway, we exchanged addresses and like a month later, he sent me that show from his, like, I think probably second gen reels. So it was really crispy and I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe how good it sounded, you know, and me and my buddy, uh, Chris, that's all we did that the rest of that summer was listen to that tape. <laughs> when Phil drops in on that first Terrapin, it's incredible. It's just incredible. And I, that's my favorite Terrapin station. It's just shiny, like a new penny, man. It's perfect. Steven, you, yeah, you were saying that you were nodding along that that's your favorite Terrapin too. Well, I like, I've, I've said this before, like that, uh, to some friends that like, there's this famous story that um, Francis Ford Coppola like hid in the projection booth uh, during the premiere of The Godfather 2 because he didn't know if it was any good. And of course, it's like a masterpiece. I feel like that's how that Terrapin sounds. There's like a hesitancy. There's like yeah. that sort of like trepidation is in the, is in the song. And that's what I love. I love it. Love that. James, 73. Um, walk us through it. I heard, I only heard one drummer, so that threw me off, but I should have keyed into the kind of disco-y dead drum, drumming that was, you know, 77, 78. Steve goes up 1-0 in the series, but James, before we move on, uh, how did you get into the dead? Oh, yeah. Um, I got into the dead um, after college. I moved to Alaska to work the seasonal job and uh, I started trying to learn banjo and I picked, picked up the banjo and I got into the, uh, I think I, I had heard a couple of songs. I found uh, Jerry Garcia, obviously everyone knows, great banjo player. The, he had this album on, I think I found it on like YouTube, the Heart Valley Drifters. That's like pre-dead. It's like early bluegrassy Jerry and um, plays like a sitting on top of the world that I, I loved. And I was like, this is amazing. So that was like my little peek into it. Also similar to Shane, I I'm like a COVID lockdown kind of like ex exacerbated my obsession. And uh, I got this job in, in 2020 where I was doing a lot of long drives. And so I would just put on full shows and I was, after Alaska, I moved to Portland, Oregon, and uh, was driving through the Columbia River Gorge like once a week for like four hours a day, 
and just listening to that the whole time and listening to the, this podcast 36 from the vault where these, these two guys just, and they're cool. Yeah. Yeah. I think that kind of helped me like learn more about the lore of the dead too. So shout out to those guys. Um, yeah. And then now it's just like part of my life and, uh, my girlfriend's parents went to, they saw Dylan in the dead in like 87 in Eugene, Oregon. And I just like to connect to people. It's like a great way to connect to people more about it. So kind of my story. James, it's funny that you mentioned that made that connection between Banjo and Althea in that interview, the Mickey Hart interview, he specifically talks about how that's, it's a Jerry Banjo thing. Like he brought it, it was like sort of a banjo lick that, that turns into that. He turned into that Althea lick. And that's why Mickey, that was sort of part of that kind of struggle with like working it into like a, a sort of a constant meter. And it like that, that, although it's obviously much later, it sort of grew out of the Jerry Banjo kind of history. That's incredible. I, you can kind of hear it too. Yeah, yeah totally. totally. Yeah. He's kind of thinking. You can't hear it once you say it. Like, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's awesome. Um, Steven, that's actually a good segue. How, how did you get into Dead and how did you end up, you know, interviewing Bob Weir and Mickey Hart? Uh, and also, <laughs> yeah, and like, tell us a little about your job at Amazon. And yeah, please. Um, uh, so I got into the dead. I, I think the, the answer would be like, which time? Because I sort of had a couple like sort of, sort of stents, uh, in high school, I think somebody had, or maybe it was even middle school or something. Somebody had skeletons from the closet. And then, you know, so I was into to sort of that at a very, very early. And then I, I got a job as a dishwasher at a restaurant. And there was a guy that worked in the kitchen that had tape. We started trading tapes and I would trade him non-dead stuff for tapes and like I would have like all my brother CDs or whatever and like and and, and traded him stuff for for t-shirts and CD and tapes and and then and then like when I went to college at the University of North Carolina um I like went sort of I went away from the dead for the while and I got really into actually um skip segue actually I was into like really into this like roots music scene and actually started working for a bluegrass record label uh Sugar Hill Records that was based in Durham North Carolina uh, and worked there uh, for a long time and, and didn't listen to the dead really at all. I mean, obviously there was a, a very specific connection, you know, to, to bluegrass and actually bluegrass in North Carolina to, to, to the Grateful Dead and Jerry Garcia. Um, I, I ended up uh, moving out to California and working. I still worked for record labels for a, quite a long time. I worked for Vanguard Records and Sugar Hill Records. And um, I moved into an apartment and like, I, I didn't have my stuff yet. And I had like one television and I didn't have internet set up. Uh, so I just had like the over the air, like television, like plugged in and, uh, and I couldn't sleep. And I was like sleeping on the floor in a sleeping bag. Cause I didn't have a bed in the apartment yet. And the Grateful Dead movie was on like the PBS, uh, pledge drive. And that morning do, uh, the morning do, and, and, and I was like back in, and then I was like, wait, I dug out Europe 72. And like, and then I was just like fully back in. Um, and then, sort of, I don't know, that was kind of ever since I went to fairly well, like, you know, I, I don't know, I just, you know, did, I've, I've sort of done as much of it as I, as I can uh, ever since and, and really sort of embraced the community and, and all, all folks like you guys. And it's like super helpful in, in my job. I've, I've always, I, so I do artist relations at, at Amazon Music and, I, and I've worked with bands for years. Um, even when I wasn't into the dead, um, I worked with, I worked with Watch for Panic, I worked with Mo, I worked with Yonder Mountain String Band and like, just like sort of speak in the language, even in the years where I wasn't really listening to the band that much, just kind of earned me trust with 
with those guys. And that's the one thing that I've learned in any artist that I've ever worked with in, in this job or, or any previous job is just sort of like listening and listening to what they care about and sort of meeting them on, on their own terms and, and sort of feeling, you know, my job is to sort of understand how I can help artists and what they need and what they care about. And I don't know, this sort of common vernacular was always a good, a good, a good way to do that. You know, and when I, when I would have a conversation with, with any of those bands, there was just sort of like a, it was just kind of like a pass key to having a real conversation about like what we we're going to do together. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's, that's my story. So a lot of bands care about the Grateful Dead. Yeah. A lot of bands care about the Grateful Dead. And I've just had some great experiences over the years. I worked with, um, had the great fortune to work with Levon Helm uh, before he passed on, and uh, worked on the, the documentary, Ain't uh, It For My Health. Uh, I was a producer on that. And and like, so was working with Levon when he recorded Tennessee Jed uh, for the record Electric Dirt. That was just a really fun, like, point in time. Obviously, it's just like, you know, holy shit, I get to work with Levon. But then just the sort of like, kind of, uh, you know, kind of the, the sort of collision of, of all those things. And then at the time that that was going on, the Black Crows made the record at Levon's place. And, you know, so I got to talk to those guys about the dead. And like, you know, it's just like, it was just, it's just been a, a real, like I say, it's just kind of a, a sort of a skeleton key to, to, to a lot of, uh, to a lot of artists and, and just people who've been around uh, and care about music. So Aquarium Drunkard, which you're a contributor to, covers a lot of iconoclastic eclectic music so you must listen to a whole bunch of stuff in addition to the dead sure yeah no it's I definitely i don't know um i feel like i'm a, definitely a, a seeker of music i i like to i like i i love it when i shazam something and there's like been four shazams of it i'm like this is amazing i'm on to something really new i live in los angeles and uh there's a great radio station kxlu I partly love it because it is like, holy shit. Some, like sometimes it's just the weirdest stuff I can imagine. And I, there was one time I was driving to the airport at like four in the morning for like a 6 a.m. flight. And it was the craziest thing I've ever heard on the radio. And I was like, what, what is this? And it wouldn't Shazam. And then the, the disc jockey comes on and it's just a student that they have on the 4 a.m. shift. And he was literally playing two songs at the same time. And he comes back on and he's like, oh, shit. Sorry, you guys. I was just, I, I, I was press play on both CD players. Sorry. And I was like, that was amazing. But like, I, so, amazing. Um, uh, I was like, I was in, I was like, whatever it is, it's working. Uh, but like, I guess that just is sort of like um, pretty open-minded. Yes. In terms of like what, uh, what I will sort of be willing to kind of investigate and really sort of see like, Hey, what are they, what are they going for here? Is, and is this good? Is it great? Is it terrible? Um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of open to all possibilities. And do you feel like seeking out and sitting with a song that's maybe not immediately accessible is a skill or is it innate for you? Um, I think it's a little bit of both. I think I, I, I think it's innate in the sense of like, and I'm, I think I feel like I'm this way about film and art and other things too, where I'm, I'm I, you know, I'm kind of open to um, something that is, is challenging um, in, a, in a pretty aggressive way. But I also, I think it is something that as my job, I've kind of honed over the years because I, I, I go to very main, the biggest pop shows in the world too. And I like find the craft in that. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is what, this is what Harry Styles is going for at the forum. And like, wow, people are really going for it. And like, you know, and just sort of meeting it on its own terms, you know, is something that I really kind of challenge myself to do um, kind of across, across the spectrum. Yeah. That works in life too, not just music. Totally. 
Cool, Steven. Thanks so much. Steve is up 1-0 in the series. Let's hear the song. So it was Black-Throated Win at Autzen Stadium at the University of Oregon on June 17th, 1994. Steven, rare to see here at 94 on the show. Thank you for bringing it. Uh, why that Black-Throated Wind? Well, I like Black. I have a big Black-Throated Wind fan for, for one thing. I love it's another. I love that riff. I love a muscular riff. Uh, uh, but I wanted to play something from this Autzen show. For uh, I like the Autzen shows in 94 and for a particular reason. I worked with the uh, I worked with the band Cracker uh, for a while and and Cameron Beethoven and they actually opened those shows which is sort of rare in itself and I always found it fascinating so Cracker played Loser in the opening set and I was always like and I've never asked the band uh, who I'm still in, in contact with and maybe I will like did you ask like if that was cool or whatever but I listened back to the tape to the Cracker set, which is also an archive. And, uh, and, and David Lowry is like, Hey, we want to dedicate this song to our gracious hosts. And then they play loser. But I just always thought that, and I think they played it every day, um, that they of those of that run. And I always thought that was fascinating. And then the other reason I wanted to play this, or as I was sort of looking at back at the show, I was like, wait a second, why is that date familiar? And it's like, this is the OJ chase. Oh. It's like <laughs> literally, literally happening. Like, at this moment and he you know another american night it's like kind of like an extraordinary american wow. night so i don't know again it goes back to that thing of like putting yourself in a place i'm like you know this is pre-cell phone it's pre-internet like people are going to walk out of this show and be like what oj simpson rant like you know so like that <laughs> and then but yeah really i started i started at a place that i wanted to play this and, and and talk about cracker playing loser in that opening set and and, and so losers on Cracker's second record, and it's a great version if you don't know it, so check that out. Uh, and so I assume maybe that's why they got asked to do the shows, and that record was out at the time, and it was a big hit. It has a song well on it, which is their, their biggest hit. Uh, but the Cracker sets are great. 
the Austin shows are really fun. It's just fun to listen to a big, huge stadium show. So yeah, that was it. Damn, that's chock full of uh, trivia there. That's awesome. Um, so Steve has repeated as guest of the year champ because he guessed 1994 exactly. James guessed 1984. Um, nice run, James. Steve's just uh, you know unstoppable right now. Steve, how'd you uh, get 94? Okay, well, I referenced this last week. Um, first of all, it was Lightning Bolt Guitar by The Cripe Guitar. Is a very unique tone, and I actually heard the first shows with that at Austin, Austin the year before, in uh, '93, and he didn't play it in '95. Um, I think he went back to uh, Rosebud in the fall of '94. He didn't play it for very long, um, so that was dead giveaway. Um, but so it could have been late '93 or uh, you know through summer of '94. But it was John Cutler running front of house sound and not Dan Healy. The drums were the dead giveaway. Um, it's a very distinct sound difference. Uh, Cutler approached the percussion with a completely different mindset. And um, so that's how I narrowed it down to, I, I didn't know the, I figured it was summer 94. And also there was, I mean, Garcia's struggling a little bit. And that's when that really became apparent um, that he was having a hard time was that summer. Um, there were moments of, you know, regular old good old jerry garcia and there were moments of oh boy <laughs> you know and so i heard some of that in there too yeah so there so what do you what are you hearing when you're like oh that's a tough little lick there by jerry. well he was struggling on two fronts well multiple fronts all the fronts actually but um somebody referenced last one of the recent ones chin on chest garcia <laughs> they were talking about that was from the 80s um and the way i see in 94 95 is and it just i'm gonna tear up saying this just sad jerry he he just looks sad he looked just heartbroken and sad and powerless and to see jerry goddamn garcia look that way um was really hard you know and it wasn't always like that i was listening to 10 194 last night which is one of my favorite shows and he's struggling a little bit but he's there man you know it's jerry garcia in full effect you know but the summer of 94, I'll, I'll never forget this. I was working in a store at the time here in Lincoln. I had just come back to Lincoln and I was insane. Um, but I was wondering what was going on. I was, came from Lake Tahoe. Um, and a guy came into my store, this big dude that probably was a biker. And he just had a, a, a white t-shirt uh, with a steal your face summer tour 94 on it. And I went up to him and he like braced himself. Like, what is this guy about? You know and I'm like? Where where'd you get that shirt? How was the show? It's like where'd you go? <laughs> and 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 he went oh and he and he just looked he he just said um, it was sad, it was sad, and that was all he could, that and he made it very clear that that was all he had to say on the subject. You know he was obviously an old school head that, you know it was tough, and I I saw I did I saw August of ninety three in Austin and then I didn't see him again until the Palace in Detroit in ninety five, and. Um, I came away from those Detroit shows just kind of decimated, really. Um, it, it was there was something just obviously very, very wrong. Um, and it seemed like most people didn't care. <laughs> that was my impression, you know. Like whatever, play the songs was and I I just came away from that really kind of um disheartened, I guess. 
you know, and so I, it's really been gratifying to see um, kind of how things have shaken out over the past, well, you know, whatever, 28 years, right? Like, I think there's been a lot of lessons learned and just, I mean, like, I, things are great right now, you know, in terms of the community and what's happening. I mean, are you kidding? It's like a, it's like a Hydra, you know, I, you know, I feel like Garcia went when he was supposed to go, you know what I'm saying? And I hate to say that, but that was really in my like heart of hearts that, I mean, the guy saved my life the grateful dead and uh, saved my life. And so I owe uh, everything uh, to them, but you know, in hindsight, maybe things worked out the way they were supposed to, you know, because things are, you know, it's great today. There's so much music. There's way more music than I could ever go see, you know, and, and it's all really good even if it's not exactly my cup of tea, like there's a, there's a wrench out there to fit every nut for music right now, you know? And so, you know, things are great. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for that. James 84. Who are you hearing? Yeah, I think, um, yeah. What Steve was saying about the nineties being sad is kind of why I tend to avoid listening to them. I mean, I know there are some great shows and it sucks because the recording quality is so good for so many of those shows that, you know, you're really peaking in, in like digital recording, Grateful Dead quality. But, uh, I just tend to not listen to a lot of nineties. So my, my brain wasn't, I knew going into this, that it was going to be hard if I got, if there was something in the nineties, you know, unless you can hear, um, a piano or two pianos, you know, then it's, then it's pretty clear. But other than that, it's tough. So yeah, I felt like I kind of took a shot in the dark, but uh, yeah, good, great game, everyone. Yeah, yep. this is, you guys, this is just awesome. This is, it's so cool to just to hang out, hang out with like-minded people, you know, that I can say things like what I just said and people don't just go, well, I guess we'll go stand over there now. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, James, great run. Steve, nice repeat. Uh, Steve, formidable opponent, opponent. Very well. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's this is the one, one this is the one arena. So thank you, Mike. This is the one arena where all of these years are, are beneficial. Totally. All the years combined. That's exactly right. Steven, <laughs> thank you so much for uh, curating this amazing set list and for, you know, lending your insight and your perspective. It was a pleasure. Oh, no, it was great to be here and, and again to, to meet you guys. This was this was a blast. Thanks so much, Stephen. And again, everyone can check out Stephen's Cosmic Strings playlist via Amazon Music uh, in the show notes. I've been vibing out to it very hard. It has a really, really great mix of artists that you'll recognize, maybe some you don't. I know I like, like Mac DeMarco and Steve Gunn and like Kevin Morby. All of them are on there. And then there's some other people I've never heard before, but it's very, you could tell it's handpicked by Steven who clearly knows his stuff. So yeah, everyone should check that one out. Okay. Subscribe to Guest of the Year on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and now Amazon Music for all the show links, including our new YouTube channel. You can go to guesttheyear.net. And if you want to be a contestant on the show, sponsor the show or make comments and ask questions, email us at info at guesttheyear.net. Shout out to Joe and everyone at Montana Trout Stalkers for sponsoring this episode's prize pack. You can check out Montana Trout Stalkers 
via the link in the show notes. Thanks to Dylan for drawing the posters and Mason for curating the prize packs. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to the amazing tapers whose recordings made this show possible. Congratulations to our back-to-back champ, Steve. And to our other contestants, thanks for playing. And remember, it's all one song anyway. And I bid you good night. Good night. Good night. And I bid you good night. Good night. Good night.